You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today's episode is part one of Ferdinand Magellan and the Circumnavigation of the World. On September 6, 1522, a battered black ship sailed into the port of San Lucar de Barrameda, which is located at the mouth of the Guadalquivir River in southern Spain. The ship, Victoria, had traveled more than 37,000 miles over the course of three years. What had begun as five vessels and approximately 270 men had dwindled to a ghost of its original complement. Among the dead was the expedition's leader, Ferdinand Magellan. The survivors, which numbered 18, had overcome countless hardships, including scurvy, malnutrition, mutiny, and warfare. And in the end, they had sailed to the very ends of the earth and beyond. It is an epic tale, and that is not an exaggeration. The circumnavigation of the globe by Magellan's expedition would go into the history books as perhaps the most daring and audacious feat of discovery the world has ever known. With this podcast, we're going to follow in Magellan's wake, pun intended, taking a look at the man, the circumstances that led him to undertake the expedition, and then the voyage itself. But before we dive into this amazing tale, I have a few notes. First, I want to warn you that I am a dorky Midwesterner with very little grasp of the Spanish language, or any other language for that matter, so please forgive me if I butcher the pronunciation of a name or a place. And even if I say something correctly, I can promise you that it will be inelegant. But the intent is true, so I hope you persevere through my mangled Spanish and Portuguese and join me on this extraordinary journey around the globe. Second, I want to mention that these events took place almost 500 years ago, so things, especially timelines, can be murky. It's not uncommon for sources to contradict each other. I'll even bring up some of these issues when I think it's important to our story. But I have no doubt that you can find information that will contradict something I say in this podcast. And that's alright. I will do the best as I can to be as accurate as possible. But please know that things may not be perfect. So, with that out of the way, how do we begin? I think the way to start is to ask a couple of questions. First, what was the purpose of Magellan's voyage? And second, why travel around the world? The answers are actually pretty simple. As to the purpose of Magellan's voyage, the answer is that the Spanish crown wanted to find a legendary spice islands. It was all about making money. And the answer to the second question, why circumnavigate the globe, The answer is that it was never the intention of Magellan's voyage. The expedition happened to accomplish the feat out of necessity, not out of some desire to make history. So let's talk about Magellan's mission. As I said, it wasn't to travel around the world. His stated mission was to find the location of the Spice Islands, the Moluccas as they were known. To understand why Magellan wanted to find the Moluccas, we need to step back in time to the Iberian Peninsula, which is what we know today as Spain and Portugal. First, let's take a look at Spain. In the late 1400s, Spain was not the single political entity that we know it today, but instead it was a collection of kingdoms, Castile, Navarre, Aragon, and Granada. They would eventually come together under the ambitious duo of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, who hailed from Castile and Aragon, respectively. It should be noted that Castile was the preeminent Spanish kingdom. Geographically, it sort of dominates the region. Historically, you often find Castilian and Spaniard used interchangeably, but for our sake, we'll use the word Spaniard, even if it's not perfect. 
Now that's Spain, but there is another entity on the Iberian Peninsula, and that is the Kingdom of Portugal. In this day and age, Portugal often gets forgotten by many. It kind of blends in and looks like it should be part of Spain on the map. But in the 1400s, it was a powerful and wealthy kingdom. It held a critical geographic location, dominating the western shore of the peninsula facing the Atlantic Ocean. This made Portugal a natural naval power. But this also made for an intense rivalry between Portugal and the bordering kingdoms of Spain. With that in mind, let's go to the early 1400s, where a Portuguese prince, who today we know as Henry the Navigator, began an aggressive campaign to make Portugal the preeminent naval power in the Atlantic. He dispatched expeditions south along the African coast, discovering the Azores, settling the Cape Verde Islands, and opening up new trade routes on the African continent. I want to point out that Henry wasn't an actual explorer. He left the tough stuff to other people. Instead, he was more of a financier and a patron and a cheerleader of exploration. But the man was critical to kickstarting the age of discovery. In addition to financing and promoting exploration, he learned about such things as Arab map making and Arab navigation techniques. He sent out men to learn about the locations and the routes used by traders to bring goods into Europe. One of the many benefits to this was that it led to the development of the Caravel in the mid-1400s. The Caravel is a small, highly maneuverable ship that would become the backbone of Portuguese naval expeditions for the next century. Ultimately, Henry's goals were not just to expand Portuguese territory, but he also wanted to expand the business interests of Portugal, in particular the spice trade. So let's talk spices. We take them for granted today, but 500 years ago they were literally more precious than gold. Nutmeg, cinnamon, cloves, and more came from the fabled Maluccas, transported by merchants overland and by sea, the price going up each time they changed hands. It's important to understand exactly what the Spice Islands, the Maluccas, are. Today they are an archipelago of roughly a thousand islands within Indonesia. But in Magellan's time, the Spice Islands that mattered were really just five distinct islands within this great archipelago. These five islands were lush, rain-forested volcanic islands that grew the treasured spices. Where these islands were located was a closely guarded secret, and whoever could discover them and set up a trade route would be fabulously rich. Finding that source was so important because trade of any kind from the east generally was conducted overland, along the famed Silk Road, or by sea, along the coasts of India and Arabia. But in the end, it all came through the Middle East, which was dominated by the Italian city-states, particularly Venice, which was made immensely wealthy by their position as the spice broker of Europe. People like Henry the Navigator wanted to get to the spice source and break that monopoly. Thus, the Portuguese pushed further and further south along the African coast, looking for a sea route to the east, and to the Spice Islands. Getting that new sea route would be even more critical after the fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans in 1453, since that would choke off much of the overland trade from the east coming into Europe. Thus, Portuguese navigators would continue their explorations, and in 1488 they would round the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, setting the stage for a new trade route to the Far East. Naturally, the Spanish wanted a part of this trade, but by the terms of the Treaty of Alcacoves, which was signed by the Spanish and Portuguese in 1479, the Spanish could not use these eastern sea routes. This made them look elsewhere, and in 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand would send Christopher Columbus west with the hope of opening up a new trade route to the Indies. He instead found a new world, at least it was new to Europe. Naturally, Spain wanted to legitimize these new discoveries, but Portugal made noise that Columbus's newfound lands were really in their domain of influence, 
according to the Treaty of Alcacoves. To hash out these details, representatives of both kingdoms met in Tordesillas, which is in Spain, in 1494, and began to divide up the emerging new world. The Treaty of Tordesillas would essentially cut the world in half, east for Portugal, west for Spain. The demarcation point would be set about 1,370 miles west of the Cape Verde Islands, which are off the western coast of Africa. While this exact location would later change, it essentially set up a line that said, Portugal, you go east and anything you find is yours. Spain, you go west and anything you find that way is yours. This demarcation point cuts through the eastern part of South America, roughly modern-day Brazil. It confirmed Portugal's control of Brazil and Africa, including the trade routes around the African continent. For Spain, it solidified their new discoveries in the Americas. It's important to know that the treaty didn't specifically say Spain gets the western half of the world, Portugal gets the eastern half. Instead, it basically says Spain goes one way, Portugal goes the other. Whatever you find is yours. And that worked for a while. But in 1518, the Spanish, now interested in finding a western route to the Spice Islands, argued that the Treaty of Tordesillas did exactly that, divide the world in half. And because of the terrible lack of knowledge of just how wide the Pacific was, they argued that the Moluccas, wherever they might be, were in the Spanish area of influence. This is murky stuff, and the obvious problem here is that, at the time, no one really knew how big the world really was. If the Treaty of Tordesillas did divide the world in two, as the Spanish argued, the Spice Islands could conceivably fall in either sphere of influence, but no one really knew for sure. Now, you probably have noticed that I'm talking as if everyone in this time knew the world was round. I mean, I grew up being told that people of this era believed the world was flat, and they were terrified they would sail off the edge of the map if they ventured out too far. And perhaps that was true of your average guy plowing a field or herding a pack of sheep. But in reality, at this time, most scholars agreed that the world was indeed round. Thus, we have a round world, and again, the key was just how big was the world. Go east from Europe, and the distance to the Indies was pretty much a known thing. But if you go west from the Americas, that's anyone's guess. In 1513, a Spanish conquistador, Vasco Nunez de Balboa, reached the Pacific Ocean after crossing the Isthmus of Panama. But there was just a great expanse of water before him. Were the Spice Islands just over the horizon? And just as important, how do you get a ship to them with the American continents blocking the way? This is one of the great mysteries of the time. From the western side of the Americas, how far away were the Indies? No one really knew, but if you look at the maps of the time, many scholars believe that Asia was not that far from the Americas. And if that was true, it was all about finding a naval route into the Pacific Ocean, and boom, you have access to the Spice Islands. To that end, the Spanish, as well as the Portuguese, sent expeditions down the eastern coast of South America in the early 1500s. The mouth of the Amazon, modern-day Rio de Janeiro, the Rio de la Plata, these landmarks were gradually mapped by Europeans as they pushed south. Further and further they went, but no passage to the Pacific was discovered. Although it should be noted that in 1514, a Portuguese explorer named Lisboa was rumored to have sailed further south and entered a strait but he turned back before going all the way through. Unfortunately, the secret of Portuguese never revealed exactly where or how far Lisboa traveled, so we'll have to chalk up his journey to speculation. If it did happen, and even if Lisboa didn't reach the strait, it's possible that Magellan had information about Lisboa's expedition. But again, that's just speculation. That brings us to the year 1518. Spain has a new king on the throne, young Charles I. And for many reasons, Charles needs money. 
The Americas are great to have, and they will prove to be invaluable. But at the time, they were pretty much a mystery, and not the cash cow that they would eventually become. Thus, when a Portuguese nobleman arrived at the Spanish court with an audacious plan to find a westerly route to the Spice Islands, the young king and his ministers were intrigued. The Portuguese nobleman is, of course, the subject of our podcast, Ferdinand Magellan. Magellan was born around 1480, the exact date isn't known, in northern Portugal to minor nobility. His parents died when he was only 10. I could not find out the details of their death, but afterwards, he and his brother Diogo were sent to Lisbon and became pages at the Portuguese court. Thus, Magellan probably got a first-rate education, and in the process would likely have been introduced to subjects such as astronomy, cartography, mathematics, and navigation. He was said to have admired Christopher Columbus, and no doubt he was fully versed in the stories of Henry the Navigator and the bold explorers of the age. But in 1495, Magellan's sponsor at court, King John II, died without an heir. He was succeeded by his cousin, Manuel I, who did not like and did not trust Magellan. The result was that the young Magellan saw his promising career falter before it even began. Without powerful friends, Magellan would spend the next decade at the Portuguese court, but not really accomplish anything of distinction. And that brings us to 1505. Magellan, now 25 and eager to prove himself, took on an assignment in a 22-ship expedition bound for India, along with his brother Diogo. The mission was to establish and maintain trading posts in the region, part of the burgeoning Portuguese trade empire in the east. He would serve with distinction, surviving numerous battles and earning honors and promotions, as well as several wounds. He also earned a reputation as being brave, capable, tough, and resilient, not to mention stubborn and unyielding. He also emerges as a very pious and intensely religious man. This righteousness will be a dominant trait in Magellan's personality, and it will play a crucial role in his decision-making on his expedition around the world. Magellan would spend approximately eight years in India. He made himself a tiny sum of cash, only to lose it when a merchant he had invested his money with suddenly died. Magellan would petition the Portuguese king for restitution, but the king would deny him. It was a denial that stung Magellan, and it would not be the last. We're going to see Magellan repeatedly make some claim to the king, often asking for money, only to be shut down every time. While in the Far East, he would also become friends with Francisco Sorreo, a Portuguese captain who would write letters to Magellan describing the details of the spice trade, information Magellan would later use to help convince Spain to back his expedition. Magellan returned to Portugal in 1512 or 1513. He had learned a great deal about the region and understood the value of the spice trade. He also brought with him a slave, a man named Enrique, who he had acquired in Malacca, part of modern-day Malaysia, in 1511. Enrique will later become a pivotal character in our tale, so let's not forget him. Looking to regain his pride and make some money, Magellan joined a military expedition in Morocco in 1513. Again, he fought bravely. He was seriously wounded in battle, a wound that would give him a limp for the rest of his life. But it is also where he cemented his reputation as being stubborn, and at times tactless, as the following incident will demonstrate. While in Morocco, Magellan's horse was killed in combat. This was a horse that Magellan had provided for the expedition at his own expense. He was offered compensation, but the offer he deemed was unfair. Normally, there's a process to appeal such decisions, but Magellan was so insulted by the offer that instead of going through normal channels, he went right to the top of the food chain, bringing his grievance directly to the king, and again, asking for more money. 
and again, he was denied, and in the process he annoyed a great number of people as well. Despite his actions, Magellan would return to Morocco and secure a good position, that of a quartermaster in the army. It was an influential position that offered steady pay and benefits. But a scandal would erupt when Magellan was accused of selling captured livestock and pocketing the profits. The charges were a sham, but Magellan, indignant as always, ignored the charges and headed back to Spain to present his case directly to the king. He did this without having leave from his superiors to do so. Once there, he didn't just complain about the charges being leveled against him. He demanded more money be given to him by the crown because of the loyalty and the suffering that he had incurred. The king, who we have to remember was never friendly to Magellan in the first place, was having none of this, and Magellan was swiftly sent back to Morocco to face charges of treason, corruption, and leaving the army without orders. It would take some time, but Magellan was eventually cleared of all the charges, and given a clean slate, what did he do next? Why, he headed back to Spain, and again he asked for more money from the king, again citing his loyalty and the suffering he had endured. Nice move, Ferdinand. The king shot him down yet again, and Magellan was left angry and poor and dishonored. I bring these incidents up because I feel like it really reveals a tremendous amount about Magellan's personality, and it really sets the stage for his coming decision to exit Portugal and search out his destiny in Spain. Now back in Portugal full-time, it was here that Magellan's scheme to travel west to find the Spice Islands came to fruition. He hooked up with a noted cosmographer, astrologer, and astronomer named Rue Filiro. Filiro was considered brilliant and charismatic, but he was also mentally unstable. Scholars seem to believe that he suffered from depression or bipolar disorder. But the mercurial Filiro brought credibility to Magellan's plans, and the two presented the idea of an expedition to the Spice Islands, via a western route, to the ministers of King Manuel. In typical Magellan style, they did this not once, or twice, but three times. Yes, three times the duo asked for royal authorization and backing for the expedition, and each time King Manuel and his advisors said no. You might ask, why wouldn't the king want to find the Spice Islands? And the answer is that Portugal already knew the location of the Malucas. They had been found in 1512, but the Portuguese crown was content to keep this information to themselves. So why worry about a western route to find the Spice Islands when you've already got an eastern one? With his plans rejected, in September of 1517, Magellan formally asked King Manuel if he could offer his services elsewhere. Manuel said, go for it and don't come back. Magellan was stunned by the rejection. He was a proud, brave, and stubborn man who had tried to do the right thing for his country and his king, and he had ended up not just being rejected, but humiliated. It was no doubt a crushing blow, but one that allowed Magellan to cut ties with his homeland and not look back. So Magellan suddenly found himself a free agent. Where to go? Well, Spain, of course. He headed off to Seville, his buddy Rue Filiro in tow. Within days, he had renounced his allegiance to Portugal and thrown his lot with Charles, the young king of Spain. Now, heading off and serving another monarch was not unheard of. In fact, Magellan may have even seen himself following the steps of his hero, Christopher Columbus, who was born in Genoa and sailed for Spain. Luckily for Magellan, he had come to Spain at the right moment. The Spanish king, Charles I, was bucking to be elected Holy Roman Emperor in the wake of his grandfather Maximilian's death. To gain said title, he needed money, and lots of it, because nothing got you an emperorship like a crate full of bribes. 
Thus, a new route to the Spice Islands was just the lottery ticket King Charles needed, and that ticket had Magellan's name written on it. It's important to understand why getting the services of someone like Magellan was desirable to the Spanish. First, he had extensive experience in India, something few Spaniards could boast. And second, as a Portuguese nobleman, he brought to the table the inner workings of how the Portuguese conducted their international affairs. This is important because the Portuguese were notoriously secret about their overseas empire. As we have seen, they jealously guarded everything from trade routes to the locations of outposts to the lands they had visited. Magellan offered an opportunity to tap into that secret knowledge, and he likely brought with him such things as maps and charts the Spanish didn't have access to. The guy really did have a lot going for him. But being a pious, stubborn Portuguese nobleman, Magellan didn't really fit into the Spanish court. He didn't know the customs or have contacts, and his Spanish was never good. Luckily for him, he was aided through the obstacles by some key friends and a bit of luck. First, he met and befriended a wealthy Portuguese expatriate, Diogo Barbosa. Magellan would even marry Barbosa's daughter, Beatriz. Using his newfound connections, Magellan and Filiro pitched the idea of a westward expedition to the Spice Islands to the House of Trade, located in Seville. There he was introduced to the formidable Juan Rodriguez de Fonseca, an archbishop and the head of the board. All foreign expeditions came through his office, and Fonseca could squash or greenlight any set affairs. There were, of course, many skeptics surrounding Magellan and his proposed expedition. His Portuguese nationality was a constant source of distrust, and it would always haunt him. And then there was the genuine fear of breaking the Treaty of Tordesillas and igniting an international incident with Portugal. But slowly but surely, Magellan and his allies moved forward with their idea. It gained traction mainly because so many people, including Archbishop Fonseca, were intrigued by the concept of finding the Spice Islands and the potential financial windfall. Eventually, Magellan and Falero would be granting an audience with King Charles's ministers. He told them what they wanted to hear. First, the Spice Islands were located in the Spanish area of influence. Magellan showed them maps he had brought from Portugal, which were inaccurate, confirming this statement. He even brought letters from his old friend Francisco Cerreo, whose own writings put the Moluccas in the sphere of Spanish influence, not the Portuguese. Second, he told them the Spice Islands were close. They just needed to find a strait through the American continent, and boom, the Moluccas. Easy peasy. And finally, the venture could make a lot of money. The Spanish crown and the house of trade liked what was being said. It was legal and it was lucrative. Money talks. Thus, on March 22, 1518, Magellan, along with Falero, were offered a contract to discover the Spice Islands. There was no mention of circumnavigating the world. The job was to find a route to the Moluccas. The contract was generous for Magellan, basically because if he succeeded, all parties would make a fortune. Some of the main points were that Magellan and Falero would receive a monopoly on the trade route for the period of ten years, and the two would be appointed governors of the lands and the islands discovered, as well as gain 5% of the land's profits, and they would get a share of the profits of the upcoming expedition. Magellan and Falero would be co-commanders. For the voyage, the Spanish crown would supply five ships, the Armada de Maluca, a large venture for the time period. The ships were Trinidad, San Antonio, Concepcion, Santiago, and Victoria. The crown would also provide provisions for two years, because, you know, the Spice Islands just aren't that far away. Except for the sails, the Armada de Maluca was all black, the result of almost every exposed part of the ship's being coated in black tar, 
which acted as a caulk and waterproofing agent. So Magellan had his fleet, and you would think the hard part was complete. But no, there was as much drama getting the fleet to sea as there was getting approval of said fleet. The first issue he ran into was without fitting the expedition. The Spanish crown essentially didn't provide enough cash, forcing the House of Trade to borrow to make ends meet. But borrow they did, tapping the House of Fugger, the famous and powerful European banking family. So, with financing in place, Magellan began to arrange provisions, hire crew members, and fit the ships for their voyage. Magellan reportedly oversaw every aspect of the expedition, showing great attention to detail as well as developing a stern reputation with the crews. But even as Magellan moved forward with the preparations, there were constant problems arising. There was a rumor that the Portuguese had hired assassins to kill Magellan and Faliro, forcing the two to have bodyguards assigned to them by the king. Whether the story was true is not known, but it was known that King Manuel was furious at Magellan's betrayal. I mean, hey, what could he have ever done to provoke Magellan into leaving Portugal and heading off to another country? Silly man. The Portuguese did attempt to stop Magellan. They conducted a smear campaign against Magellan's and Faliro's families and their reputations both in Spain and in Portugal. They then appealed directly to Magellan, saying, you know, hey, Manuel loves you and wants to talk to you about an expedition, so come on home. When this didn't work, the Portuguese appealed directly to Charles, who in the end stuck by his men. Another major issue that arises during this preparation phase of the expedition was the meddling of our friend, Archbishop Fonseca. Fonseca felt that Magellan and Faliro had too much power granted to them by the royal charter. And let's face it, Magellan and Faliro were Portuguese, and that fact alone was enough to make some people suspicious of the duo. The expedition would always have an undercurrent of distrust running through it, as people didn't trust Magellan due to his nationality. I can't stress how important this was. There was always a fear that Magellan was secretly working for Portugal and undermining the entire affair. Magellan would hold the title of Captain General, and he would have ultimate power while at sea. Fonseca sought to curb that power by limiting the number of Portuguese who could be in the fleet. He then had allies installed in key positions, including Juan de Cartagena, who was named Inspector General of the expedition. Cartagena was known as Fonseca's nephew, and I'm using air quotes here, but in reality he was the Archbishop's illegitimate son. As Inspector General, Cartagena would be the House of Trade's eyes and ears, plus he would command the San Antonio, the largest ship in the fleet. Fonseca would also oust or demote several prominent officers that Magellan had selected, getting them replaced with men of his own choosing. Two of the fleet's captains, Louis Mendoza and Gaspar de Casada, were two such additions. They would command Victoria and Concepcion, respectively. The final ship would be commanded by Juan Serrano. I want to stop and talk a moment about Serrano. He is often identified as a Spaniard, but many sources indicate that he is Portuguese with the name of João Serreo. And he's not just Portuguese, but he's related to Francisco Serreo, Magellan's old friend from his days in India. To be honest, I really don't know what to make of all this, because it's a pretty big difference. But I'm going to stick with calling him Juan Serrano for a story. The main thing to know is that Serrano, whether he is Portuguese or Spanish, is considered a Magellan ally. So, with that out of the way, we find that three of the five ships were firmly in the pocket of Fonseca, commanded by loyal Spaniards. It should be noted that the nepotism displayed by Fonseca was not uncommon. Magellan's own illegitimate son, Cristóbal Rebello, was appointed as page. 
and Magellan's brother-in-law, Duarte Barbosa, and his cousin, Alvera de Mesquita, were given important posts. The fleet numbered about 270 men. Some of the notable crew members included Magellan's slave, Enrique, as well as Juan Sebastian Elcano, a Basque pilot, who will be very important to our journey later on. And then there were also two men who would chronicle the voyage. The first was Francisco Albo, a pilot who kept a logbook that survives to this day. And the second was a Venetian scholar named Antonio Picafetta. Picafetta is really the important guy here. He was brought on board by Magellan to document the upcoming expedition, and his writing survived. They are one of the most amazing first-hand reports of a naval expedition of this era ever recorded. Picafetta did not just record the events like a logbook. He was candid and detailed, showing a fascination in everything from the sexual customs of the native peoples they encountered to the food and animals found in a particular location. He took time to learn the language of the peoples the fleet encountered, leaving whole lists of translations in his writings. It's an amazing document, and it brings life to our story, life rarely found in the voyages of the age. I do want to note that P. Gavetta will be a Magellan loyalist to the end, so his writings rarely show Magellan in a poor light. But even with his bias, his writings are a wonderful window to the events we're discussing. So we have our ships, our financing, our crews, and our captains. Are we ready to sail? Not quite. That's because another major issue to arise was the increasingly erratic behavior of Magellan's partner, Rue Filiro. As noted, Filiro was mentally unstable. One source indicates that he read his own horoscope, and it revealed that he would die on the upcoming journey, so he was reluctant to go and test the fates. No matter, the powers that be, likely Fonseca, recognized Filiro's instability and had him removed from power, much to everyone's relief. The removal of Filiro did create a bit of a void, as there was no official second-in-command. Fonseca's son, Cartagena, took it upon himself for the role, indeed coming to think he had as much power as Magellan. The two are doomed to come into conflict. The Portuguese also made another attempt to convince Magellan to abandon the expedition, but Magellan was done with King Manuel in his native land. He had been humiliated and run out of town. A prison was what probably awaited him if he ever returned to Portugal. He was now King Charles's man. The shabby treatment by Manuel had steeled him for that step. So Magellan's fleet was almost ready, despite the obstacles thrown in his path. His crew was gradually assembled. He would have men from all over Europe, including Spain, Portugal, France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Norway, England, and Greece. It had been a difficult task to fill the ship's complement. After all, who wants to go on a two-year journey under a foreign captain? And while the destination was supposedly secret, it was likely common knowledge what Magellan was up to. I mean, they named the fleet the Armada de Maluca. It's pretty hard not to figure out the destination. Thus, the ships were made ready. Provisions were loaded on board, including food. While there is livestock and fresh fruit and vegetables, food for an ocean voyage is decidedly unhealthy, as it needs to survive a long time in an unforgiving environment. You have wine and hardtack, and the latter a hard cracker-like biscuit that was the crew's primary food. And there's also salted fish and meat. It's a diet heavy in salted foods and low in protein as well as vitamins. Not ideal for a long sea voyage. But there is one item that was brought on board that will be essential to our story later on, and that's quince jelly. The quince is a small fruit, and the jelly made from it will be very important to our story, so let's not forget about it. So, after a year of preparation, the ships are loaded and ready to depart Spain. 
Magellan, who is leaving behind a pregnant wife and a young son, has to find a way into the Pacific Ocean. Then it's just a short trip to the Spice Islands. It's as easy as that. On August 10th, 1519, the five ships left Seville and descended the Guadalquivir River to San Lucar de Barameda. Five weeks later, on September 20th, the Armada de Maluca put to sea. The greatest voyage of discovery in the history of mankind was underway. Next time, we'll begin our journey across the Atlantic to find the straits that will provide a passage to the Pacific and to the fabled Spice Islands. But there's lots of fun in between, including mutiny, shipwrecks, executions, and even orgies on the beach in Brazil. You don't want to miss that. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.